First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you've carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Paul has provided Timothy a description of the dangers that the church faced in Ephesus in verses 1 through 5. Now Paul's going to encourage Timothy in some possible defenses against those dangers in verses 6 through 11. The dangers included a coming apostasy, a falling away from the truth, which he talks about elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But at the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. That is, they are going to leave sound teaching and essential doctrine. The Holy Spirit's warnings that satanic spirits would energize and influence false teachers, denying the basic essential Christian teachings, and that those false teachings would also provide an excuse for false living. And that's the problem. One of the sure signs of a false teacher and false teaching is that they will preach moral purity and practice moral failure. They are hypocrites, according to verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They are hardened in heart. That's what seared or cauterized in conscience means. They're willing to abandon essential Christian teaching in verse 3. The dangerous false teachers read the Bible. And I want you to think about this. The false teacher reads the Bible and then attempts to explain away the message. Imagine if the message of the Bible is, God loves you. No, it, well, he does, but not in the way you think. God's willing to forgive your sin. Well, maybe, maybe not. Heaven is a real place that you can go. I hope so. Heaven is a hell is a place that has to be avoided at all costs. Wait a minute. Are you one of those people? A fire and brimstone kind of a guy? The dangerous false teachers 
read the Bible. And then they try to tell you that it doesn't really mean what it says. Paul is going to provide a list of countermeasures. Some of you who have been brought up in the military know what a countermeasure is. A countermeasure is an act or a plan that you take in order to try to avoid the danger that's up ahead or to prevent or reduce injury. So how do we defend ourselves against false teachers and false teaching? Paul's answer to Timothy in part is found in verse 5, the word of God and prayer. The word of God settles the issue. And prayer to God settles the human heart. Remember, the false teachers were advocating and advancing social and cultural restrictions. Don't marry. Dietary restrictions, commanding to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, what Jonathan talked about last week, forbidding what the Bible allows and allowing what the Bible forbids. So for servants in the church, this passage, verses 6 through 11, and then the passage that follows in verses 12 through 16, is going to sort of provide a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts in ministry. We're not supposed to waste our time arguing over foolish ideas and silly myths in verse 7. Later, Paul is going to remind Timothy that he must not allow his youth to serve as an obstacle or to fall prey to the intimidation that sometimes takes place when you're a young man in ministry or not to neglect his spiritual gift in verse 14. And so the whole passage is asking a question and inviting an answer. What is it that I need? What is it that I need? What is it that I need to be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you want to be a servant of Jesus if you want to avoid or at least reduce the dangers that come with false teaching and false teachers, then there are certain things that you should do. You have to learn to spiritually feed yourself in verse 6. You have to avoid spiritual nonsense in verse 7. You have to exercise yourself towards disciplines of godliness. These are spiritual disciplines. You have to think carefully in verse 9. You have to be willing to work hard and bear unjust criticism in verse 10. This is going to require that sometimes you confront error and that you are open to receiving specific instruction in verse 11. So Paul is going to remind Timothy that you're going to have to learn to feed yourself. Paul has served as Timothy's mentor and discipler for years. 
I've served as your mentor and discipler for years. All the while hoping, praying, trusting that you're going to grow. That you're going to be able to open the Bible for yourself. That you're going to be able to read it for yourself. That you're going to be able to take time and pray by yourself. And so Paul is going to say, you're, you need to learn to feed yourself. Look at verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Paul's problem is to make sure that Timothy understands that everything that he's learned thus far is good. He says, if you instruct, the, the New International Version says, point out. The Old King J James says, put in remembrance. The original text is, a, again, a compound, complex word. It's hupo, tie, thimi. It means to place under or lay in order. Some of you are very, very ordered. You have a, a pantry. The flour goes one place, the sugar goes another place. Everything has its place. And you do that not because you're trying to be overly compulsive. It just makes sense, doesn't it? If you know where things are so that when they're there, you can find them. And so... It means if you instruct, remember, put in its proper place. That's what that idea of instruction means. And the brethren is, is a fun word. In the Greek language, it's adelphos. You may not know what that word means. But it means in the primitive Greek language to share the same womb. Now again... Do we all have a common mother? No. But so why are they brothers? Because we share a common gestation. We share a common frame of reference. We are the people who have come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so he's saying, instruct the brethren in these things. Put it in a place where it can be easily found. Put it in a place where it can be easily found. That's again what I've tried to do my whole life. I've tried to put the instructions in a place where you can find them for yourself. I need to know about 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Taught it. It's in the media room. What about 1 Corinthians 14? Yes, it's there. What about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? I've done it all. What about Jeremiah and Isaiah? It took me two years, but I did all of it. All of it is there for your perusal. All of it is there for your support. The reference in these things serves as a connective to Paul's previous statement in verses 1 through 5. Instruct them in these things. It might be a reference to all of the things that he's written 
in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and 4. Timothy's been well nourished in the words of faith and good doctrine. Timothy has understood and faithfully followed the teachings of Paul. Now Timothy is tasked to faithfully impart those teachings that were entrusted to him. That's my, my heart's desire. My heart's desire is that Jonathan is going to be able to entrust to you all of the things that I've entrusted to him. Paul belonged to a first generation of apostles and teachers. Timothy belonged to the second generation. The gospel and the gospel message relies on the faithful teaching in each generation. Billy Graham famously said, God didn't call me to preach to the generation that came before me or to preach to the generation that came after me. God called me to preach to this generation. Hey, guess what? God called me to speak <laughs> in the 1970s, in the 1980s, in the 1990s. But there's a fresh generation and there are fresh voices that need to be heard. The good minister of Jesus instructs the brethren, Adelphos, carefully warns them about the dangers of false teachers and false teaching in verses 1 through 5. The leader, the servant, the pastor, the leader, the servant, the pastor elevates, exalts Jesus Christ. If the pastor's not elevating Jesus, then we're doing something wrong. The good minister faithfully teaches the nourishing word, the healthy, healthy food. And so, again, sound doctrine, chapter 1, verse 10. And remember, we've already talked about sound doctrine. That word sound in its root comes from a root word that means hygiene, a, a word that in the ancient world had to do with health, eating healthy. So what Paul is saying is engage in teaching that promotes spiritual health. The good minister of Jesus feeds on the word of God so that he or she may be able to feed others. And what is the suitable diet for the servant, for the minister of Jesus? The words of faith, the words of good doctrine, carefully followed. Note what it says, the words of faith, the words of doctrine, carefully followed. It isn't just that you know what you're reading. It doesn't impress me that you can cite chapter and verse. It doesn't impress me that you know the theme of every single book in the Bible. What is going to be most impressive to me is that when you read the Bible, you actually do what it says. We feed our children. The wise parent will make sure that the child will one day feed himself or feed herself. 
Now, there are exceptions. My Nona, my Italian Nona, she goes, you sit down, you eat. I'll fix your brujol. Doesn't matter how old I get. She is the one who is going to make the spaghetti. She's the one who's going to make the sauce. Are there exceptions? Yes, of course there are exceptions. But in the end, you'll never be healthy. You will never be spiritually healthy until you can open the Bible for yourself, read it for yourself, understand it for yourself, apply it to yourself. And so he continues with avoid foolish speculations. Look what it says in verse 7. But reject profane and old wives' fables. What does Paul mean? Remember where we've come from. Good food promotes good health. Poisonous food is a recipe for illness. Unhealthy doctrine results in spiritual deprivation that leads to spiritual illness. So here's what Paul is saying. Avoid spiritual nonsense. You can go on YouTube and find nonsense galore. So Paul is saying, promote godliness. Avoid spiritual nonsense that distracts us from healthy spiritual objectives. So again, what are we to reject? Reject profane and old wives' fables. What does that word profane mean? It translates a Greek word, bebelos. The word appears five times in the Greek New Testament. Twice it refers to a person. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, three times it describes not someone, but something. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 20, and later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. Some scholars suggest the word means the very opposite of sacred, which in that context would mean worldly. It may reference people who suggest or seem to suggest that they're religiously involved, but they really aren't. The Latin equivalent profanus, pro, before, phanum, the temple, it would mean anything that's outside the temple or outside that which is sacred. Sometimes we'll make a differentiation between the sacred and the secular, and it's an artificial distinction. The Bible gives you permission to involve Jesus in every aspect of your life. You can involve Jesus in your work. You can involve Jesus in the absence of work. Everything that you do according to the Bible, do it unto the Lord. So in short, profane means disconnected from that which is sacred or godly. Another way of thinking about this is, Anything that leaves God out of the picture. I want you to be very, very careful when you're hearing me right now. Because there are people who will say, 
hey, can't we just leave God out of the picture? They can, but you can't. Because if you leave God out of the picture, then you're leaving out the most essential thing that gives you the ability to respect people, to respect justice, to respect significance, to own up to sensibility and integrity. So what are we to reject? That which is profane. Some scholars believe, again, that Paul is making reference to the Gnostic teachings, which were scornfully described as profane and unholy mythoi. In other words, this is the kind of group that will say, hey, you know, in the book of Genesis, you know how it talks about in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth? It's not really true. Oh, do you know how in the Bible it says that he created the male and female? No, he didn't. Oh, do you know how it talks about he brings the woman to the man and that God invents marriage? No, he really didn't. Those are myths in order to explain reality. Let me tell you something. According to the Bible, creation is not a myth. It's the explanation of how we got here. According to the Bible, Adam and Eve weren't just some sort of genetically modified animal who somehow gets inserted with a soul. According to the Bible, you've been created in the image of God. According to the Bible, you were made so that you could know him and love him and trust him. I suspect that when Paul says, reject profane and old wives' tales, I suspect that what he's talking about are the wild and foolish speculations that attempt to explain things, listen carefully, apart from God and apart from Christ. That's what he's talking about. Some people love spiritual nonsense. They thrive on stupidity. The Amplified New Testament uses this expression. Irreverent legends, profane and impure godless fictions, mere grandmother tales, no offense to grandmas, and silly myths. The good minister rejects all false teachings, which are nothing more than frivolous speculations and false notions fabricated, made up by human beings to offer an alternative to what the Bible actually says. So what might this include? Fables? What else? Superstitions? What else? Speculations? What else? Figments of the imagination? What else? Spiritual fictions that are disconnected from the revelation of God that appears in the Bible and in the person of Jesus. And so then Paul will say, exercise yourself to godliness 
at the end of the verse, look what it says. Exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. I want you to notice the word exercise. I know that some of you hear the word exercise and you shut down. Sometimes you'll hear the word exercise and you'll think the gym or you'll think Pilates. The verse in 7 and 8, he's using the word in verse 7, gymnazo, present active imperative. It's a verb. The noun in verse 8, gymnasium, nominative, singular, feminine. What does all of that mean? There is value in bodily exercise. The text doesn't say no value, but neither does it say enormous value. Paul is going to contrast godliness with physical exercise. Now here's what they have in common. Both require effort, right? They require effort, effort and exertion. At some point, you literally do have to put on your shoes and you have to either walk or run. You have to put on your cool outfit and go to the gym. You have to exercise exertion. So what in the world is he talking about? Because they both require effort and exertion, the reference isn't simply a metaphor for the physical activity of exercise, but more likely the disciplined training that takes place when a person says, enough. I can't be lazy for the rest of my life. I have to get up and I have to work out. But from a spiritual standpoint, it's for the person who says, I'm done. I have to stop ditching church. I have to stop not reading my Bible. I have to stop avoiding friendship and fellowship with like-minded believers. I have to stop pretending that I'm living all by myself. I have to stop pretending that there are people who need me, who need my presence, who need my love, who need my prayers, who need me in the spiritual gift that God has entrusted to me. So again, what does Paul mean? He means discipline training is required. I don't have, it's, you don't have to be a physical fitness nut to understand that a workout requires that you work out. <laughs> But training is the discipline of working out on a regular basis when it becomes a part of your normal routine, when waking up becomes a part of your normal routine, when praying becomes a part of your normal routine, when it becomes a part of your normal routine. So what does Paul mean by godliness? I think he means two things simply. A right attitude about God... So the way I'm going to put it is a right attitude about God and towards God, but it also means a proper response to God. So godliness has two broad elements. 
what you think about God and then how you're going to respond to God. Paul has already mentioned godliness in chapter 2, verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. He's talked about it in chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up to glory. So apparently godliness has something to do with believing what God has said about himself and about Jesus. And so, the way that I would put this is Paul is going to emphasize what Warren Wearsby used to call constant Christian living constant Christian living. Godliness has something to do with what you believe. And then godliness has something to do with the way you behave. So we don't simply believe the word of God. We practice what it says. We practice the word of God. In what sense? So that we can reflect the character of Christ which informs our conduct in the world, which would include joy. If people look at your life and they see your face and they see the frown and the tears, don't get me wrong, there are times when there, there are times for mourning and there are times for crying and there are times for difficulty. But is your is your real life marked by joy and contentment? And so this also might include things like bearing one another's burdens, anticipating hardship, relieving suffering, experiencing persecution. We train and discipline ourselves in this present and current circumstance so that other people can partake of our life and that we can collectively store up rewards in heaven. You might be thinking, what? You mean it's okay to want rewards? Uh, yeah. Do you know what the athlete does? The athlete doesn't prepare in the hopes of losing. I guarantee you that the women's soccer team that's in the World Cup, that those young ladies have prepared their whole life not to lose, but to win. Is there value in participation? Yes. Is there value in the discipline in and of itself? Yes. Godliness, according to Paul, is profitable in all things. You mean your character right now? Yes. What God wants to do in your life? Yes. 
And so we cultivate reason and purpose. Look what it says in verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So what is he saying? And why is he saying that? In the context, what is the worthy saying that he's making reference to? Is it godliness? Should we include everything that Paul has said up to this point? Does it include the warnings about the false teachers and the false and foolish teaching in verses 1 through 4? Is, are these also instructions about food and fellowship in verses 4 and 5? Is this about exalting Christ in verse 6? Is this about nourishing others and ourselves in the Christian faith and Christian living in verse 6? Is this avoiding foolish and frivolous speculations in verse 7? Is this understanding and exercising spiritual discipline that leads to godly or Christ? Christ-like behavior in verse 8. I actually don't know. And when I don't know something, instead of having a very narrow definition, I usually have a much wider definition. It probably means all of the stuff that he's just talked about. The good minister is willing to embrace and accept Paul's instructions. And this becomes one of the important issues. Paul wrote about one-fourth of the New Testament. There are those people who would pit Jesus against Paul and Paul against Jesus. Paul instructs his readers, I need you to believe the gospel. That's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul's instructions deserve acceptance and respect. So Paul invites us to think about and accept his teaching. What has he said thus far that's caused you concern? So Paul reminds Timothy that the good minister, the good servant, reasons, thinks, considers, reasoning, consideration. They're thinking about what's being said. They're thinking about what's being said and you're thinking about what's being said. Is it true? Is, is the Bible true? Is Jesus the, the Lord? Is my sin a problem? Is my heart conditioned? Does it matter before God? The good minister reasons, thinks, then commits his or her life to Jesus and others. Now, I want you to think about why this is such an incredible thing. Because the moment that you commit your life to Christ, the moment that you decide that you're going to do what Jesus wants you to do, you're embarking on an adventure of service to others. And now your life has purpose and meaning. For anyone who has ever laid awake at night in their bed, staring at the ceiling, wondering what in the world am I doing here? According to the Bible, you're here so that you can have fellowship with God. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to have a life of meaning and significance and he wants to use your unique gifts and callings to make a provision for others the moment that you believe that 
It's the very definition of purpose. And so Paul has done this before. Paul has said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief, 1 Timothy 1.15. Later in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul said, this is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If he, if we deny him, He'll deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. I want you to think of these faithful sayings as compass points. The moment that you ask and answer the question, am I going in the right direction? Am I going in the right direction? Am I going in the right direction? These faithful sayings will point you in the right direction. And so he says in verse 10, work hard and bear unjust criticism for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God that is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. This passage is a bit of a mystery. And the reason why it's a bit of a mystery is because you have two families of manuscripts. The majority of the medieval manuscripts translate the Greek word one didzometha. One translates this agonadzometha. And you might be thinking, what in the world does any of that stuff mean? One means to labor and suffer reproach. One means, again, the labor or toil and struggle. Or it means labor and strive. Whether it's one or the other, I think, doesn't make the most difference in the passage. In either case, the meaning leads to anticipating struggle. Discipline, toil, that the Christian life is hard work. And so I think what it means is that trusting and serving the living God and serving God as Savior is going to require effort. Do you have to, does it require effort? to get saved. No, you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. When Paul writes, for to this end we both labor, the word in the original language labor here means to break a sweat. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you are in the business of climbing up trees or paving roads or sawing wood. Some of you have the kind of job where you don't just inspire, you perspire. So here, Paul says, you work in such a way that you break a sweat. Some jobs don't require perspiration. Well, what's Paul talking about? 
Did Paul break out in cold sweats while dictating this letter to Timothy? Probably not. So what's he trying to say? That ministry is hard work. The labor that Paul is describing. It means a willingness to work. So you're quite literally exhausted. Sometimes that means you're going to a hospital and you stay there all night. Sometimes it means praying with a family. Sometimes it means being with them over a long period of time. Sometimes it means that, that loving people is going to take time and effort. We exert every effort. We employ every resource. The reproach that Paul is speaking about is a word that means unjust criticism. We're willing to work and we're willing to work hard. What else? We're willing to work, we're willing to work hard, and we're willing to bear unjust criticism. We're willing to bear misunderstanding. We're willing to bear ridicule. We're willing to bear mocking. People in secular services understand about this. A doctor who's a pediatrician, can you imagine if he or she decided to quit their job every time the baby started crying in the waiting room? Can you imagine every police officer who decided to turn in his badge and give up his gun when he hears the word pig or he hears the word cop or he hears whatever word he happens to hear and it's not a kind word? Are there people who are willing to bear ridicule, misunderstanding, and mocking? because they have a higher calling. Army officers returning from Vietnam endured spitting and chanting. I thank God that the environment has somewhat shifted as people understand and respect all the things that people do in the military for us. And sometimes it's true of ministers. It isn't, doesn't shock me anymore when somebody comes up to me and says, I want your job. I want the kind of job where I, I only have to work two hours on Sunday and I'm done. You're laughing. Some people really believe that. They believe that that's all that I do. Discipleship is training. Like athletes and like soldiers... We have to prepare for resistance. We have to prepare for difficulty. We have to prepare for hardship. Don't be surprised that you're living in a world where if you identify as a Christian, if you identify as a person who loves Jesus or believes the Bible, people are gonna look a little bit shocked and surprised. So again, the metaphor that Paul employs is like the agony experienced when people compete at the highest levels. The soldier prepares for war. Because guess what? In a war, you have to sometimes kill people or be killed. 
a police officer really does run the risk of experiencing harm. Little League is different from the major leagues. Paul trusts in the living God. Paul trusts in the Savior of all people, especially, he says, those who believe. There are those who reject the revelation of God in Jesus. So Paul is basically saying, even if your family members, even if your friends, even if they say, I don't believe the way that you believe, and I don't believe what you believe, and I don't believe what the Bible has to say about humanity, sinful circumstances, sexuality, marriage, we understand that there are those who see all things through the filter of culture, or they see all things through the filter of sin. They don't necessarily see things through the filter of the redemption of God in Christ. In what way is God the Savior of all? Well, in the way that the Lord offers salvation in Christ to all. That salvation is available to all who will repent of their sin. Does this teach universalism? No, it can't. Because the scripture doesn't ever impose salvation. You're never ever, hopefully, going to be manipulated into coming to Christ. Well, you know what? I prayed to receive Christ. I went to church. I was under pressure by my parents. I was under pressure by my girlfriend. I was under pressure by my boyfriend. I wanted everyone to believe this about me. A false profession is no profession at all. The scripture never imposes salvation. There are those who will reject Christ and deny Christ and deny the gospel. They'll deny their own sinful condition. Is the Bible teaching salvation apart from Christ? Salvation apart from grace? Salvation apart from faith? I don't think so. There are those who would say, you're either saved or damned for all eternity because you were saved or damned for all eternity. Nothing could be further from the truth. All have sinned, all fall short, all are condemned. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven. And so the good minister toils. Why? Labors. Why? Exercises godliness. Why? so that you can obtain eternal life. I'll go without sleep. I'll stay up late. I'll get up early. I'll pour over this text. I'll look at the original language. I'll do whatever it takes to help you see that the Bible's message is for you. That when the Bible says Jesus loves you, he really loves you that he's willing to forgive you, he's willing to forgive you. That you could be reconciled to God, that that is true. We believe the gospel, 
Paul wrote in Colossians 1.29, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And finally, confront and instruct. Look what it says in verse 11. These things command and teach. The good minister, the faithful servant, commands and teaches these things. What things? The, the discipline of sound doctrine in chapter 1. The disciplines of prayer and public worship in chapter 2. The disciplines of church government in chapter 3. And now the disciplines of local leadership. Of how do you con to, to conduct yourself amongst yourself. We confront error. We instruct in the truth. Paul knows that all authority is in Christ. And so we do this with boldness and courage, and conviction. How could that possibly be? It isn't a leap for me that if Jesus can save me, in my world, you're a piece of cake. It's not difficult. It's not a difficult thing for him to do. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If he's with us always, and we're coming close to the end of the age, then it makes perfect sense that he's with me now that we can experience the favor of God and the presence of God. Spurgeon says, quote, Christ's ministers are your soul's physician. We're not fiddlers to tickle your ears, nor confectioners to please your palates, but physicians to cure your diseases. And if you nauseate our most needful medicines, we dare not withhold them and gratify you with sugared poisons, unquote. Spurgeon is the first to admit that what we say as ministers isn't always going to please. In modern terms, you've heard that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. What Spurgeon is basically saying is he's the first to admit that sometimes the minister is going to say something that isn't appealing to the stomach. Because they've grown comfortable with sugar-coated cliches or cultural niceties. Real medicine sometimes does not sit well in the system. And sometimes it can leave an unpleasant aftertaste. I'll eat my pills, my wife will go, stop complaining! These are disgusting. Just take them. Swallow them. They're good for you. In the early church, character as well as conduct mattered. Cyprian of Carthage said, quote, when appointing priests, we should choose only those of spotless and upright character as our leaders. 
One early journal called the Didache said, quote, appoint bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, mild men. That means careful men, not people who are combative, not people who are out to get money, but men who are genuine and approved for their prophets and teachers. If you want to be a good minister, then prepare to defend yourself. Number one, learn to instruct yourself in the truth so that you can instruct others. Exalt Jesus. Number two, discourage spiritual nonsense. Number three, get in spiritual shape. Read God's word. Know God's word. Live God's word. Seek fellowship. Pray, serve, give, exercise godliness. Godliness has dual benefits. It will help you now and it will help you later. And number four, godliness requires hard work and effort because service will sometimes lead to criticism. And number five, the word of God provides our authority, our guidance, our instruction, our purpose. And by the way, Paul isn't done. Paul is going to encourage Timothy to be an example to other believers in verse 12, to devote himself to public devotion and worship in verse 13. He's going to tell Timothy, don't neglect the spiritual gift that God has given to you. And he's going to tell him to devote himself to instruction and admonition and direction by the word of God. He's going to say, you should participate in reading. But reading in those days was the scholarly study of scripture. And exhortation was a willingness to open up your mouth and tell people the truth. In the ancient days, they didn't share the gospel. They preached the gospel. They didn't say, well, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. They said, accept this message. Turn from your sin. Receive Christ as your Savior. Live in eternity. And so in short, Timothy's going to need to exercise self-discipline in public ministry, but also in his private life. And that's what we're going to talk about, the Lord willing, when we meet again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that these words didn't go in one ear and out the other. Lord, we pray that the seed would go deep in the soil of our heart. That it would manifest itself as life. And that, Lord, our lives would bring forth fruit that people can participate in as they come close to us and take what's been given to us for their edification. And so, Lord, again, 
I pray for every single man and woman. I pray for every young person. I pray that they would see themselves as Jesus sees them. That Jesus loves you so much. That he died for your sin. He rose from the dead so that you could be justified. And that he's alive right at this very moment so that he can save you. And so we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.